And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning. It's uh, Monday as we start a brand new week. Of course, we're also starting the last half of October, getting ready to wrap up the month. Halloween right around the corner. Yes, put all your Halloween decorations out now. It's now close enough to Halloween. <laughs> so we were complaining about this in September. Too many were out in September. But now's time. Good, go. Decorate everything. Um, anyway, it's all good. A lot of fear and loathing in the markets, of course, over the last couple of weeks. Uh, particularly last week, as the uh, situation between uh, you know Israel and Hamas has continued to kind of gain steam. Right now, uh, there were some rumors out yesterday that a ceasefire had been reached. That's been completely denied. Uh, Israel, of course, preparing for a, a ground a ground assault, uh, you know, to further this uh, you know hostility. Now, the the important thing though is that this also comes same time we still have the Russia Ukraine thing going on. Uh, that hasn't slowed down at all. Of course, uh, Israel has now taken the limelight away from Zelensky in the Ukraine. So now all eyes are now focused on what's happening in Israel rather than Ukraine. But nonetheless, that's still going on as well. Obviously, concerns there. Um, this has just kind of been rolling through the markets. And of course, once we just get back to U.S. domestics, right, the economy's been showing some signs of slowing down. Consumer sentiment dropped very sharply in the last report. Um, as student loan payments have now restarted. So all of a sudden, people not so sure about their financial situation as compared to a year ago. That, you know, that uh, piece of confidence, financial situation versus a year ago, had been improving over the last several months. As soon as those student loan repayments start, that dropped very quickly. Of course, now their financial situation not as good because of that. But the economy showing signs of slowing down for sure. And high interest rates, obviously, recent inflation prints have, have certainly weighed on you know kind of, kind of sentiment of the markets. And again, you know, when you take a look at sentiment and positioning the markets, it's been very negative, and it's been that way for the last really three months. And again, has not really improved much. So again, kind of no, no matter where you look, whether it's investor sentiment, whether it's positioning in the markets, um, whether it's just economic sentiment, um, take a look at CEOs right now. And of course, we're, we're just really kicking off earnings season in earnest today. More bank earnings out this week, but this week we also have Netflix and Tesla going to be reporting earnings. Uh, so we're going to start getting into some of these big, you know, mega cap seven stocks. And when you take a look at earnings, as an example, um, earnings estimates are down 3% from the last quarter if you exclude tech and energy, right? So if you include tech and energy, it's basically about flat from last quarter. They really haven't come down much. But earnings est uh, estimates are actually 3% lower once you strip out those mega seven and energy. So again, it's just really a very small group of companies, mostly the mega cap seven and energy and financials driving the profit margins of the overall economy right now. So really when you look below the surface, the strength of the overall economy really isn't as strong as it appears uh, kind of just by looking at the financial markets. But again, we go back to looking at positioning, uh, looking at, you know, kind of overall consumer uh, investor sentiment still on the very negative side right now. Uh, not extreme fear. Um, you know, we had this little rally over the last, you know, kind of early last week. 
Uh, that took some of that extreme, more extreme fear off the table, but still, uh, overall, you know, a lot of concern about where we are and, and kind of where we're headed to. Here's what you need to know before the bell this morning, though. Markets did come down on Thursday and Friday, so we had this very big rally that ran for about a week. Um, came off the 200-day moving average, ran right in, and we talked about this uh, last week, ran right into the 50 and the 100-day moving average, where those two moving averages are now crossing each other. So a lot of overhead resistance here, and we said that likely, um, you know, we could see a bit of a failure there, uh, see the markets pull back a bit. That's exactly kind of what happened. Came down, sitting right on the 20-day moving average. Now this morning, futures are a little bit flattish uh, at the moment. Interest rates are up a bit this morning. Uh, stock futures are flat. Dow's up um, because of energy and, and what's happening with the material side because of what's happening in Israel, of course. Um, but you kind of the rest of the market a little bit flat today. So again, we'll see how the markets open. Kind of need to hold this 20-day now. It's entirely possible that we could come back down and retest the 200-day moving average again. That's certainly not without, you know, not outside the realm of possibility at all. Um, particularly given that you know we did get you know kind of a lot of that oversold condition had reversed a lot of that oversold condition with that rally. So again, a bit of a pullback here. Not surprising. Not terrifying. Anything else. Um, but that'll potentially set the markets up again for another rally as we get to November and December. And again, we had written an article a couple of weeks ago talking about October weakness and that it's certainly not surprising if you see a little bit of weakness in the month of October, particularly coming out of August and September. Um, but as we get further into earnings season, if earnings uh, you know, kind of come in and, and are supportive, but then once we get into November and December, we have stock buybacks reopening. So again, that's kind of the support for that year end rally. Again, none of that's actually changed here at all. Uh, markets are kind of doing what they're doing at the moment. There is a bit of a downtrend channel. We do want to pay attention to that. If we do take out the 200-day moving average, then the whole dynamic changes here, um, at least in the short term. So again, you know, this is a real kind of important range that we're trading in at the moment. Want to keep a watch on this for sure. Again, nothing going on here to be overly concerned about. MACD buy signal is in place here. That's, that's what kind of gave the lift to the markets over the last couple of weeks. And again, positioning is very negative. Again, a lot of fear and loathing in the markets. That's going to be, that's really kind of that setup here. We've got a lot of positioning that is offsides at the moment as we go into year end. A lot of CTAs, a lot of professional managers behind in performance this year. They're underweight equities right now. They've got to get that money allocated on the book. So that's why you typically have this kind of year-end push. And mostly it's just positioning uh, to get into year-end reporting. So again, there's certainly a lot of things. And, and again, there's, you know, while historical precedent leads to year-end rallies, it doesn't mean it has to happen. There are years that you don't have year-end rallies. A good example of that was 2018. The Fed was hiking rates, nowhere near neutral rates. Market sold off in no November and December. You're down 20% over two months. So that's certainly, there are certainly periods in history where year-end rallies don't occur, they just occur more often than they don't. So if you're playing probabilities and possibilities, the probability is you're gonna have a rally here. So you kind of wanna be somewhat prepared for that, but you've also gotta be a little bit aware that there's certainly risk uh, in this market, particularly with everything that's going on on a geopolitical basis, as well as just really a, a financial economic basis. The, the, you know, the lag effect of all these rate hikes still sitting in the markets, uh, we're well within the ranges of the lag effect period of, of you know, whether it's uh, inverted yield curves or whatever it is, there's normally a 12 to 18 to 24 month lag between the time that those invert and the time of the onset of recession. So we're still well within 
the period where these lag effects occur. But so those lag effects are still sitting out there. That's still going to weigh on economic growth. The Federal Reserve, of course, also coming up at the end of the month. Will they hike rates? Won't they hike rates? Odds are right now that they're going to hold rates pat. And, and they've really kind of been dropping those hints over the last week with a lot of Fed speakers, another one out today, um, you know, kind of saying, you know, the, the, the recent rise in 10-year Treasury yields have done the, the work for them. So they don't need to hike rates anymore right now. So again, there's lots of moving pieces here um, to, to pay attention to. But again, you know, we've got to pay a little bit of attention, give a little bit of homage to uh, seasonal probabilities and, and, pay, and, and kind of give a little bit of specific for that, particularly given, you know, the buy signal in place. Short-term overbought is going to work itself off here over the next few days. Then ha- can kind of get set up here for another bit of a rally. So we'll see how the, how the market kind of plays out today. Um, and then we'll keep you up to date as we kind of go along. Uh, that's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Uh, when we come back, lots more to talk about. We'll get into kind of the outlook for the economy and, and really talk a little bit about this and, um, you know, fiscal spending and kind of what happens as we head into year end as well. So all that coming up here on the show this morning, realinvestmentadvice.com. Our latest newsletter is out. So be sure and go by the website. Get that, realinvestmentadvice.com. Be right back after the break. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to the show this morning. So right now when you take a look at you know, kind of the markets and, you know, what's going on. This really kind of comes down to, you know, the concern. I I shouldn't say it's a concern, but really the, you know, impact of economic outlooks, shall we say. And and it's interesting right now because if you talk to most individuals, you know, uh, things aren't fantastic, right? You know, obviously once you strip out, you know, kind of the the geopolitical stuff that's going on. That's certainly a weight, right? Whether it's Ukraine, Russia, or now with what's happening in Israel, um, geopolitical risk certainly a concern. A lot of you know, you know, articles out today talking about potential for Hamas attacks in the U.S. So you know, certainly a concern. People very kind of concerned about this. But you know, when you talk about the economy. You know, people, you know, the, the, the vast majority of individuals that are surveyed are concerned about an economic slowdown, concerned about recession, um, obviously, you know, spending, making ends meet, those type of things. It's, it's, you know, inflation, they're concerned about the price of gas, the price of food, price of eggs. You know, their sentiment is not great. However, if you interview Wall Street, most of them, you know, no recession in sight. Everything is fine. We're just going to have a little bit of a slowdown. It's going to be a soft landing. And, you know, it's, it's a very interesting dichotomy between what the economic data says as well as when you actually talk to people, right? And, you know, this is kind of interesting point is that, you know, a lot of these surveys that are done by the government, whether it, and particularly the employment survey, and we you know we've talked about the fallacies of these employment surveys before, which is that you know we call sixty thousand people, and we say you know are you employed, and then people say well yeah I'm employed or no I'm not employed or whatever. Then we call the same people for you know four or five months in a row, 
see if their situation has changed. And then we get, then we get a new set of people and we call a new set of people, right? I've never and, and I'm 59 years old almost, and I've never been surveyed in my life, right? So you know, I don't know which households are calling, but they've never called me. Um, but the point is, is that the in order to have a good survey, right, you need a a good participation rate. And if I send out a survey and I, I'm, I need a thousand responses to have a sampling, right? So how, how, so real quick, just in case you don't understand this, these economic reports that we get from the government are mostly surveys, whether it's jobless claims or employment. And again, these are surveys of data. And we take a sampling. So we sample, and you know, for the BLS employment report as an example, we sample 60,000 households. And we then extrapolate that 60,000 to represent 330 million Americans. So if I'm not having, and so if my sampling size is 60,000, the, the, the fewer number of responses that I get, the less reliable that survey becomes. And over the last really five, six, seven, eight years in particular, there's been a very sharp decline in the number of people taking the surveys. Survey rates have dropped a lot. So the reliability of these surveys, particularly when you're getting a smaller and smaller sample size, is becoming less and less reliable as a, you know, a, an official report of government statistics. And these are the things that we're basing monetary policy on. You know, and it's been interesting. We talked about this in the recent employment report. You know, we get an ADP report out, the the automated data payroll systems. You know, they provide their data. And they're actually, you know, this is actually a company that's processing payroll, right, ADP. So you would think that they have a pretty accurate picture of what's going on with employment. And again, I've got lots of problems with the way they report their data, too, because, again, it's really pretty simple to me. And look, I'm a very simplistic person. If I'm a company that's processing payroll, I can simply look at my payroll and say, look, I had 900,000 people that all got jobs this week. I got, you know, another 400,000 notices of people that got terminated. That's, you know, that's pretty simple math. Right. But they still but even with ADP, they start doing adjustments and mathematical whatever. Right. And just stop that. <laughs> just give me a moving average. We're good. But nonetheless, you would think that ADP has a pretty good handle on what's happening with employment. And the interesting thing is, is there is now a very big negative divergence between ADP and the BLS report. They just don't agree with each other. So, what, you know, what do you take away from that? Is employment as strong as we think it is, according to, the, to government statistics? Because ADP doesn't see it that way. So, when we're talking about data, and we're talking about the outlook for the economy, what do you believe, right? And, and again, you know, this is when you come back and talk to the average person, they're not totally convinced that their job is secure right now. They're, you know, they, they, they have a job and they're happy to have a job, but if we take a look at the number of job switchers, that's, that's dropping pretty sharply. People aren't as willing to just you know, get ticked off at their boss and just, I, well, you know, screw you, I'm going to go get another job, right? That's, 
slowed down a good bit here as of late. People aren't as convinced that they can just walk out of a job and get a new job. But according to government statistics, we just have a ton of job openings that just, you know, you want to quit job, quit your job and change, there's another job for you. So again, big dichotomies between kind of what's happening on the real economy versus how it's reported. But this makes this is what makes it a challenge to manage money and to invest in this markets right now. Most economists expect no recession. Unfortunately, <laughs> as Bob Farrell once said, that you know, when every person agrees, you know, when Wall Street agrees, something else tends to happen more often than not. And again, you know, and again, from the recession standpoint, right? Remember in 2022 last year, those same those same economists and Wall Street analysts all expected a recession. It was like it was almost you know, a hundred percent of Wall Street and Wall Street economists were all expecting a recession in 2022, inverted yield curves and a whole nine yards. It didn't happen. And because it didn't happen, now they all think that it's not going to. We're going to have this magical soft landing that we're hoping for. But yet all the other recessionary indicators, leading economic indicators, inverted yield curves, all still suggest a very high probability of a recession. Timing, of course, is everything. We're not going to have a recession this year, by the way. Right. So 2023, no recession. As we talked about before, probably 2024, uh, latter half is probably where we'll start to to see it. And by the time that's recognized by the National Bureau of Economic Research, it may be 2025. Before they backdate the recession, say, oh, yeah, it started in the second quarter, third quarter, whatever it is of 2024. So it'll be a long time yet before we have that recognition of recession, even though the vast majority of Americans kind of already expect it to happen. You know, there isn't this, you know, this overwhelming sense of, of prosperity at the moment. So again, it's just, it's just, this is, you know, this is why it's so difficult trying to parse out all of these different things that are going on. You've got the markets doing one thing. You've got yields doing another thing. You've got economic data on one side saying one thing. You've got economic data on the other side. Then you've just kind of got the overall overall view of things, right? People, I'm getting tons of, you know, right now, just I'm getting a tremendous amount of emails concerned about World War III. You know, this is, you know, what's happening in Israel is going to spread. Iran's going to jump in and and then China and Russia. And we're all going to just be one big mosh pit of, of World War III. Hopefully not. That would be a terrible thing. You know, is it a risk? Sure, it's a risk. And, and, and you can't deny that. Is it a certainty? No. Hopefully... Cooler heads will prevail, and this will resolve itself as it has in the past. I mean, this isn't the first time that Israel and, and the Palestinians have been at it, right? This has been going on for a very long time, decades. Since 1947 <laughs> is when this started. And it hasn't 
evolved into World War III yet doesn't mean it won't. And I'm not saying that it will. I'm just saying, you know, there's always the risk, right? We always have to, to acknowledge there is a risk of something happening. You can't absolutely unequivocally say this isn't going to happen. Hopefully it won't. Odds are it won't. But certainly something to consider. I'm not sure that means, you know, going out and, and building a bunker in your backyard, but, you know, something worth paying attention to. But again, this is, this is the problem that we have in the markets right now is that we have a very big dispersion of sentiment in all different directions, which makes it very difficult, again, when you start trying to factor all these things in, you know, what does this mean? What does that mean? You know, how does that impact things? There's so many different variables that the potential number of outcomes are enormous. And, and trying to factor all those in makes things very difficult on what happens between now and the end of the year and now and the next year. This is why we have to pay a lot of attention to what the markets are just doing right now and try to deal with that the best that we can. All right, quick break. We'll be back. More of the show coming up right after the break. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com The show this morning. So, right now, you know, it's like, a, as I said, there's, there's certainly a lot of concerns that are going on and uh, kind of a lot of things happening at the moment. Um, you know, of course, the, the big issue is, you know, whether or not we're going to have a recession. That's really what this all comes down to. And everybody's, you know, certainly concerned about that. Wall Street, not so concerned about it. Um, and, you know, the uh, recent kind of you know, so the Wall Street Journal uh, conducts an economic survey. They have about 65, 70 different economists that they email on a regular basis and say, what's your forecast for, you know, unemployment and this and that and the other thing and what's your, what's your outlook for recession? And, you know, right now, um, a recession is no longer in the consensus. Um, just, I'll just quote to you from the Wall Street Journal right now. Economists are turning optimistic on the U.S. economy. They now think it will skirt a recession. The Federal, Federal Reserve is done raising interest rates and inflation will continue to ease. It's, it's Goldilocks economy, right? It's not too hot. It's not too cold. It's just right. 
In the latest quarterly survey, the Wall Street Journal uh, Business and Academic Economist lowered the probability of a recession within the next year from 54% on average in July to just a more optimistic 48%. This is the first time that they have put the probability below 50% since the middle of last year. The median probability was 50%, in effect, uh, a coin flip. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the equivalent of really saying, I don't know. <laughs> maybe we will, maybe we won't. Um, but here's a, a quote from uh, BMO. The probability of recession continues to recede in the U.S. as the banking turmoil subsides and strong labor market resilience and rising real income support consumer demand. That's from BMO. Now, let me contradict that with two other articles from the Wall Street Journal. The Federal Reserve should hold interest rates steady as the U.S. faces the potential for job cuts, though not mass layoffs, the top central bank official said on Friday. Patrick Harker, the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, said the unemployment rate could climb to 4.5% over the next year, which would amount to hundreds of thousands of job losses and then fall back to 4% in 2025. So on one side, you have all the economists saying, hey, everything's fine. Employment's strong. Don't worry about it. You have a Fed official coming out, and this is not the only one, by the way, but you have a Fed official coming out saying, hey, you know, we could see hundreds of thousands of job losses and an unemployment rate rising to 4.5%, which, by the way, would coincide with an economic recession. So, um, you know, that's that's certainly concerning. And, but, and then we flip on the other side of this, another Wall Street Journal article this morning. These are all these, This is all in today's Wall Street Journal, right? And as we were talking about before, this is why it's so hard to manage money. This, these, all these differing opinions, if you're reading the Wall Street Journal, you know, what do you do with it, right? But here you go. Many of the stocks at the bottom of the market's leaderboard have something in common. They are shares of consumer-oriented companies. More than two dozen stocks in the consumer staples and discretionary sectors of the S&P have now set 52-week lows in October. Among them are retailers, such as Dollar General, Target, Kraft, Heinz, Conagra Brands, Clorox, and Colgate-Palmolive. Now, let's just take Target and Dollar General as an example. Okay? Set aside the political stuff for just a second. Let's just talk about retailers. Okay? Dollar General, five below those type of companies. Those are at the bottom of the consumer discretionary channel. So as people become more concerned about spending and budgets, they start stepping down the scale, right? So you were shopping at Nordstrom's and Macy's, and then you start, then you drop down into Target and Academy, and then you move down into Dollar General and Five Below, right? So you just kind of keep moving down the list. Dollar General's posting 52-week lows, right? That's the bottom tier of consumption. So that tells you that the consumer is a bit more stressed than what surveys suggest. And this isn't surprising to any of us, right? We, we know the consumer is under pressure. We know that the reason, you know, now that, that a lot of the stimulus money has run out and those type of things that the, 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 80 per, the bottom 80% of spenders are having a tough time making ends meet. Yes, when we talk about excess savings, we talk about that. That's that's looking at the global, right? It's like we take a look at 100% of the people that we survey, 
and excess savings are still there, but it's mostly that those excess savings are all in the top 10% of income earners. They have excess savings. The bottom 80% don't. And you see this now reflected in a lot of these, you know, consumer-oriented retail stocks, particularly at the lower end of the scale, starting to see the impact of slower spending. And it's not surprising, right? Higher cost, higher gasoline, higher energy costs, all that stuff, uh, draining the wallets. And, and again, you know, when you just talk about the, the issues that impact consumers, they only have so much money to spend. Then they turn to credit and credit is getting turned off. Companies aren't, you know, banks aren't willing to extend more credit in a lot of cases. So we're seeing tightening lending standards across the board. So not surprisingly, we're starting to see the impact on the consumption side. So, uh, so again, you know, the, the, the point of this conversation, though, is that this is why it's so difficult to navigate what's going on within the overall markets. Because on one side, again, you have very optimistic economic analysts. Right? These are the smartest people in the room, supposedly. Right? These are the guys with PhDs in economics, and they're looking at the raw data, and they're telling you everything is fine. Economists on average, Wall Street Journal, economists on average expect gross domestic product, the value of all goods and services produced in the country adjusted for inflation, to increase 2.2% in the fourth quarter of this year. That is a sharp upward revision from the average of 1% growth last time the survey was taken a quarter ago. So all the smartest people in the room are ratcheting up their assumptions of strong consumer spending. Yet the retail stocks are not suggesting that. Now, again, we haven't seen these. We haven't seen the quarterly reports from these companies yet. We haven't heard from Target and Walmart and these other companies in the, for the latest quarter. Now, we heard from them about second quarter, right? We just got out of that reporting season. Retailers report towards the end of the earnings season. So we heard from them. They all reported slower foot traffic, et cetera. Has that magically improved in the third quarter? Are we about to get reports from retailers saying, man, we can't believe the turnaround in consumer spending. It's just gone crazy. I'm not sure that's going to be the case. I think we're going to hear much of the same thing. Slower foot traffic concerns about spending reduction in staff and wages. I think, and I think the markets are sniffing that out, right? I think investors are, are sniffing that out to a degree. And that's why you see these stocks trading near 52-week lows. Now, the risk... And again, we go back, as we were talking about in the last segment, the risk with following the economic analyst is that when they all agree on something, typically they're wrong. And um, I'm going to, you know, fortunately what uh, the Wall Street Journal provides is all the data on their quarterly survey. So I'm going to be writing an article for Friday looking at the historical accuracy of, of these forecasts and say, okay, well, what, what did they think 
right prior, you know, in 2007, right? What did they think in 2019? What did they think in, you know, 2012, just before we had the manufacturing recession? You know, what what were their attitudes in 2018 before that 20% decline and 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 the drop in Fed funds rates? You know, we'll take a look at how accurate these forecasts have been prior to previous events, depending on how far back the data goes. But I, I, I suspect that we're going to find out that they're very late to the party. And, and the reason is going to be, and this is, you know, this is the problem. If I just take the data and then overlay that on you know, to a chart of recessions, it's going to look like, you know, that they're pretty accurate. The problem is, is that the recessions are always backdated, right? 12 months later, we're in a recession going back 12 months, right? So, you know, this is, this is, you know, we'll have to, you know, have to look at the data and see what their, what their views were prior to the dating of the recession. And I, and I suspect we'll find that it's not as accurate as it looks. Anyway, that we'll work on that on Friday. But again, you know, the point here is, is that you've got to be careful with what headlines say. You know, the market has a pretty good sense of what's going on here. And I think the market is going to be right that the consumer and economic growth is going to be a lot weaker than what these economists expect. All right. Be right back after the break. news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com so uh talking about fear and loathing on wall street of course and you know this really kind of comes down to the biggest things that are driving the market is, is you know guys we kind of talked about this morning you know, there's so much conflicting data right now it makes it very difficult to navigate markets i mean it's you know we all as individuals we all tend to gravitate with whatever makes us comfortable uh in terms of the news so if you have a propensity to be really bearish you know, you're focused on Israel and what's happening there and, you know, interest rates and the debt and the deficits. And, you, and, you know, if, you're, if your bias is just very negative as, as a general person, nothing wrong with that. Just if that's, your, if that's your normal bias, you know, those are the things you're focusing on. You know, if you're more optimistic, you're focusing on other things that are more optimistic in nature, right? Stronger consumer spending hopes and those type of things. So it's, you know, that's what, but that's why you have a market, right? You got to have people on both sides of the ledger that are willing to buy and sell. And that's what makes prices go up and down. And, and eventually, you know, stories will bear themselves out over time. And so, you know, 
this but this is why you know contrarian investing is so important is that when you have a very big propensity of negativity within the markets markets tend to do something different and you know if you take a look at trading flows right now if you take a look at positioning in the markets as as whole U.S. fundamental long short gross leverage is up a little bit here uh, to uh, uh, in, in recent weeks, but overall exposure to equities remains at very low levels over the last couple of months. There's been a lot of net liquidation in markets in August, September, and the first couple of weeks of October. So again, if you think about how markets work, right, you have to have buyers and sellers. And, you know, this is one of the fallacies, as we've talked about before, if everybody was a passive investor, if we all just bought an S&P index fund and then did nothing, right, we're just going to sit on it, markets would be flat every day. They would do nothing because there's no buying and no selling. We're all just being passive. This is the fallacy of passive investing, right? We're just going to ride the wave. If everybody's passive, you have no market. You've got to have people willing to buy and sell every day. And that buying and selling is what drives prices. And you know, we've explained this before about what you know in very simplistic terms is you know what drives markets is that on you think about two rooms, right? And in each room you've got people willing to buy or sell. And let's assume that you have the the, the same number of people in both rooms today this morning. You have 10 people in each room. So the 10 people that are in the, the buying room, right? They all want to buy shares and, and the, the number of people in the selling room, same. You have 10 people willing to sell shares. So one of them sells. One of them buys. And so as, as, as each of these people transact, we lose a person in the room, right? Because they've done their transaction. So I've got 10 people to sell, 10 people to buy. And so the first person sells, first person buys, they leave the room. Now we have nine in each room. Now what happens is, is that... As the sellers sell, prices are coming down, right? And there's a number of people buying, buying. They're buying the shares as prices are coming down. Well, at some point, the buyers are going, well, if prices are coming down, I'm going to start putting my bid out there to lower and lower level. And so as they keep dropping their bid for the price, there's a seller there going, man, I can't afford to lose any more money. I'm going to sell. But there's a point of where sellers just go, mm, I'm done. I'm not going to sell at any price lower than this. I'm just going to hold it now, and, and hopefully it'll come back at some point, right? This is psychology of the markets. But we've now exhausted the sellers. The sellers are not willing to sell at a lower price. And the buyers are no longer, they're, they're, they're exhausted now. They can't get a lower price. So as soon as... One of the buyers says, okay, you know what? I, I still want those shares, but I'll pay you a little higher price for it. One of the sellers that it's left will sell the shares and the price will go up. And then so now the next buyer over here panics. He's like, man, I better buy it now because the price is starting to go back up. And the seller goes, well, wait a second. If prices are going back up, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask for a higher price. And so the buyer says, I'll take it. It's a higher price than the previous transaction, but I'll take it. And so the price comes up, and then the next seller up there goes, oh, I'll ask for a little higher price. And then the next buyer goes, I'll take it. And then prices start coming back up. And then there's a point where buyers become exhausted. They're not willing to pay a higher price for those shares. But that's how a market works. That's why markets are driven by psychology, right? They're, they're driven by the fear and the greed, the panic, 
all those type of things. That's what makes a market work, and you can't have it any other way. That's why prices go up and down. And that's why in the short term, this is why we pay so much attention to technicals. We pay attention to the, you know, the, uh, you know, we, we publish a, a, a greed, a fear greed gauge every week in our newsletter, you know, measuring uh, all based on positioning. Are individuals, you know, too greedy or too fearful? Because if they're too fearful, probably you're near a bottom. If they're too greedy, probably near a top. Because that's just the way the psychology and positioning work in an overall market. And right now, that positioning is pretty much on the negative side. They're under, you know, even professionals, uh, they, you know, professionals sold off a lot of equity positioning. They had below 40% equity positioning in September. That's, an, that's a fairly low level. In fact, normally, whenever you see positioning at 40% or less by professional investors, that's been almost a, a perfect mark for bottoms in equity markets. Then they have to position back up. They've got to start adding positions back as prices start to rise. And so we're starting to see last week, we saw that reversal of that position. It's still very low, right? There's still a lot. They've got to put a lot of positioning back on their books yet. But we had just come off of over 90% positioning back in July. So we went from over 90 to under 40 in three months. So again, there's, there's this under positioning, this fear of the markets right now that, that give you a bit more of a bullish tinge to the potential for the markets. That doesn't mean we're going to go off to all-time all, all highs. That's, nobody's saying that. Just saying that the markets have room to move higher because of this lack of positioning and this kind of fear and loathing on Wall Street that currently exists. Um, you know, we were talking about staples and discretionary. I thought this was an interesting note from Goldman Sachs. Consumer staples were, was the most notionally net sold U.S. sector on the prime book last week. It's the second net, most net sold in standard deviation terms behind utilities, uh, which have been driven by heavy short sales. You know, one of the things that drive stocks to really kind of more irrational oversold levels. Utilities has been one of those, just been under a tremendous amount of pressure, interest rates going up, so people sell utilities. It's just that's the way it is. But this also goes to the recent, you know, jump in, in yields as well, um, has been these computerized trading programs that basically jump on a train of momentum. So if the, if the momentum train is higher or lower, they just all pile in and they're either leveraged long or they're leveraged short. And when they're leveraged short, they just can really drive prices much lower than they would be otherwise. But that provides a great buying opportunity because when that eventually bottoms and reverses, all that net short has to be covered. All those short positions have to be covered as prices start to rise. And so those computer programs start covering shorts and it drives prices up. So you can you know, expect as yields start to come down that utilities and real estate and some of these more interest rate sensitive sectors are going to be huge outperformers, you know, probably next year. Because, again, you know, whenever there's something most hated as it is today, those are going to be some of the most loved when that begins to reverse. And it's because of this, you know, kind of this algorithm driven market that we live in that creates these extremes. You know, the same thing happened in energy when we had negative energy prices. And then you had massive outperformance in energy shares the following year. 
just the way things work. So again, uh, staple short flow has increased for six straight weeks. And as this week's um, notional net shorting was the largest in three months, nearly all staple subsectors were net sold on the week except for uh, retail, led by housing products, sorry, led by household products, beverages, and food products. Again, those are all uh, kind of bets on a much weaker consumption number. Again, it kind of flies in the face of the Wall Street economist saying everything's just fine. The consumer's booming. So if somebody's right, somebody's wrong here. We'll see who it is. Um, but again, this is, you know, when you take a look at headlines versus market positioning, there are two very, very different things that are going on. Now, somebody's going to be right. Somebody's going to be wrong, right? Such is always the case. You know, markets are extremely negative in terms, and this is, and what we're, when we're talking about the markets now, we're talking about professionals. We're talking about CTAs. We're talking about hedge funds. We're talking about long short managers. We're talking about those guys. They are very negatively biased right now, and they're winning that trade at the moment, right? Because the market's been cooperating them for the last couple of months, in particular. So, you know, the question becomes, what happens? if things reverse in the short term. Now, we're only, look, we're not talking about, you know, next year, right? The Lancer recession's coming, so, you know, they're going to they're gonna kill it because the, when the recession comes, price is going to lower. Yeah, that's, you know, the question, though, is, is do they have to reverse first and then reshort again when the recession hits later next year? Because we're not going to have a recession in the last quarter. So, balance. Right, it's always about the thing. It's, it's you know, two different stories going on. Got to kind of figure out how to thread the needle in between. All right, wraps up the show for the day. Get by the website realinvestmentadvice.com. S&P futures are up about 15 points right now in the S&P. Dow's up about 158. We'll see how the market trades out today, and we'll be back here to talk more about it tomorrow. Have a great day.